from Sora Schools, it's Sora Learning Lab, a show where we dive into the world of learning research and innovative pedagogy. Through interviews with education researchers, advocates, and innovators, we'll explore the ideas and trends behind the future of learning. Mike Flanagan is the CEO of Mastery Transcript Consortium, a growing network of schools who are introducing a high school transcript that opens up the opportunity for every student to have their unique strengths, abilities, interests, and histories understood and celebrated. Mike has been at the intersection of business, technology, and education for over 30 years and is the proud parent of two young adults. So thanks so much for being on the show today, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So the first question I like to ask people is just tell us about your story. What brought you to the field of education? Why do you think this is an important thing to work on? And then what brought you to the Mastery Transcript Consortium? Yeah, I, I think the, the one word I always use when describing my journey or my resume is eclectic. Uh, it, and I say that I, um, you know, since we're talking about education and we're talking about school, I have to sort of put a little kind of uh, caveat that like I, I was a very lucky kid. Um, school came very easily to me. I was very happy and comfortable in school. And so I wound up going to a bunch of schools where it's not hard to imagine a pretty linear track coming out of school, right? Be good at school and then you'll go to law school or med school or other things and, and sort of your everything that follows from that will kind of be more or less on rails. Um, but my first job out of college was teaching. I, um, I moved from Connecticut to Hawaii and I taught English at an independent school and I coached track and cross country there for three years. And um, we could go deep on sort of all the things I did wrong as a new teacher, um, but it was a great learning environment. Like I think I, I, I hope I made up for it with enthusiasm uh, and, and work ethic. Um, and I was very lucky that I had a bunch of mentor teachers who were really supportive and, and put the time in to kind of show me the ropes and make sure that like I didn't do it to anything too egregiously wrong. But I think um, after teaching for a while, the, the beauty of living in Hawaii is that it's Hawaii, <laughs> uh, but it's also isolating. And so um, uh, we, I moved back to uh, the Continental 48 for graduate school. And I thought I was going to be a professor. And that was, again, more of this linear thing. Like if you're good at school and you like school, then what's the epitome of school? Like graduate school, <laughs> being a professor. Uh, and it was there that I just realized like, oh, this is not for me. And, and I say this, I have classmates. Um, I was at the University of Washington in a PhD program for English. And I have classmates who are professors today and at some great universities and colleges. And, and they're really happy. But like I was not going to be happy sort of studying a very, very narrow set of something super deeply forever. And so I did kind of this weird pivot and, and went into technology. And uh, I was in Seattle. It was in the mid 90s. So grunge, the, the whole thing and startups, right? It was um, everybody um, seemingly was getting access to venture money and starting new things. And so a college classmate of mine and I met up with uh, another guy and started a series of different internet and kind of business companies. And they, they were not good. <laughs> like I, we, I, I still joke about them. Uh, you know, they, there was one where we were trying to create like a consumer reports for online learning. Um, and which, cause e-learning was really big at the time. Um, 
in, in some ways it still is like it's it's still having trying to find its moment um but i think at the time this was e-learning in the corporate space so we tried to build a consumer reports for it that was not a good idea it was a bad business model but eventually we we, we the, i use the word pivot kind of tongue-in-cheek but we actually did before people use that term we were able to pivot it and turn it into a business that was actually pretty successful um it was called intrepid learning solutions and we wound up kind of stumbling into this business process outsourcing space for the corporate training function. And that's a mouthful, right? You know, when he talks to like a six-year-old and says, what do you want to do when you grow up? I want to go into business process outsourcing. Um, but, uh, but it was really an amazing education because you wind up doing this weird mix of management consulting and technology consulting and, and, and kind of, you know, operations. Um, and then I was very lucky. I got uh, tapped to lead a different company. I moved back home to the East Coast and I, I started working for 10 years for a, a group that was part of the National Association of Independent Schools. And I was asked to kind of lead a, a rebuild of this product they had um, that basically was doing what the FAFSA does for college. Uh, there is no FAFSA for K-12. Uh, there's no federal money for K-12. Um, but the problem space of like, hey, we need one application, make it as easy as possible for parents to fill it out, make sure it's hopefully they have access to our schools. Um, it was a good mission. Um, and I learned a ton because uh, I took the job very naively. Um, I was told, hey, that we have this great software and your job is to grow the business. And it turns out it was very bad software. Uh, and we had to rebuild it from scratch. And that was really quite an education. I spent two years just apologizing to people. Um, but when, when all of was said and done, um, I was very lucky where I met the founder of MTC, who um, was also affiliated with NAIS, Scott Looney, who is the head of uh, a great school in Cleveland, Ohio called the Hawkins School. Um, is was also on the board of NAIS. He was actually my board chair for this kind of little company within a nonprofit that we had created. Um, and um, he was he was telling me about MTC for a while, and I, I kind of I sort of got it. I kind of didn't. Like I was like, okay, yeah, whatever. Like that's interesting. But um, but we wound up selling um, a private equity company. Wound up buying um, this kind of entity that I was running, and so uh, it created some time and space for me to kind of catch up with him and really learn more about the project. And so uh, I joined, I was the second employee and was leading product development. So the transcript, which we'll talk about later, you know, was sort of, um, you know, the, the kind of the, our, our baby. And, um, and then, uh, you know, a few months ago, uh, I took over as CEO. So here we are. So yeah, like I said, eclectic, probably long-winded. Um, but, um, you know, if, if, if we do our job right, I can maybe talk about how some of the stops I made along the way are relevant to kind of what we're doing. Because um, I think one of the reasons it was an eclectic path is that um, we, I, we just made, I made tons of mistakes along the way. Uh, and, but they were, they're, the, they're the most important moments, right? Like I, I can tell you much more about what we learned in those businesses about what we did wrong and what we failed and when things were going smoothly and, and running downhill. And I think there's an aspect to that that should, I think, inform what learning could be for high schoolers as well, right? Where, um, and so you could say that in some ways I'm a recovering perfectionist, right? I, I was very handy with a number two pencil. I was taught that like, hey, you know, unless you're doing 99%, 100%, you know, you're no good. Uh, and then you get out and life is messy, right? And and it really is, it's kind of bracing because it makes you realize that 
um, it, the world is not linear, right? The world is not on rails. And um, creating space in school to help kids understand, like, oh, you are going to fail at things, right? And more importantly, it's okay. Like, that this is not, your job is not to be perfect at everything, but rather to figure out how you learn from your setbacks and failures. Um, I think that's a really important theme. And it's very relevant to what we'll talk about with Mastery Transcript, because it really boils down to assessment, right? How do we give kids feedback? How do we create space for them to take risks and to learn? Before we jump into the Mastery Transcript and speaking about that, I want to dial in on that one thing you just said, why assessment is important. So how do you, why do you think assessment is this Trojan horse, um, or perhaps you don't feel this way, but um, from my perspective, I think assessment is this sort of Trojan horse that we can use to infiltrate schools and to start working towards reform. And I also think it's it's the incentive system we're creating for kids, so naturally it's what they, they care most about. Um, so why, why did you decide to focus on this piece of assessment first? Well, that so I think you just nailed it in passing, this idea that like, you, kids are very rational creatures, right? Um, and so... Um, we can tell them until we're blue in the face that, hey, you should take risks, you should try new things, and it's okay to you know, struggle at first, and, and you know, that's where the learning comes from. <clears throat> but then we create these models where on day one of school, you know, the first week you'll get a quiz, you know, and if you get a 70 on it, like, boom, that's it. Points are gone. They're never coming back. And then they just keep kind of going that, and that's just kind of unfolds. And, and we have sort of hacks and cheats for that, right? Oh, we'll make the final count more. We'll create space for extra credit. Um, but the, you know, the fact of the matter is, you know, there there is a business axiom, a cliche that like um, what you measure matters, right? And kids realize that, like they're being measured all the time, constantly scrutinized. It's a constant war of points. Um, and so, you know, it's not just uh, it just it's both. Um, cognitively and affectively and philosophically completely at odds with this more benign story we're telling them about what education is and how it should work. So, um, so yeah, I, I think you could do a lot worse than shorthanding the case for mastery-based learning as saying, hey, we just need to upend this kind of point system. Um, and we'll talk more about kind of you know ma- mastery and, and, and the difference there. But I think um, I think it is trying to create a system, ways in which the if if we're going to aspire to schooling that is learner-centered and humane and effective, right? Um, the problem with traditional point system it's not that it's too effective. It's it's that it, it ignores, it basically allows large numbers of kids to wash out of our systems because they receive this message that, oh, maybe this isn't for you. You know, we grade, we, when you grade on a curve, you assume that not every kid has potential, that every kid can and achieve at a high level. You actually assume that like, oh, my job as an instructor is to identify the bottom performers. Right. I mean, literally, that's what a curve is, right? Um, That's where we like to say that kids start to feel like school isn't for them. But in reality, school wasn't made for them. It really wasn't. Yeah, that's right. And I think, you know, the good news is we are and I can't I I, if there's one theme I I, want to try and hit throughout this is that MTC, the Mastery Transcript Consortium, we are but one of many voices talking about this. Like we are not we did not invent this. We did not create it like there's a whole 
really encouraging kind of groundswell of change and change agents and organizations that are really rethinking all this. And uh, I mean, look, we're having this conversation here, right? So um, you talk to them all the time. Um, so, you know, but for us, um, we thought we saw a, a one specific link in this chain of change, and it, and it does come back to assessment. So, um, so yeah, so when you think about mastery, right, you know, what is, what is mastery? What is competency-based learning? Um, I think it, one of the things that I found really attractive about it is that you can really reason just from these very basic first principles and wind up like in a completely different space. And one of the things I found in, in the various businesses that we, you know, were starting and failing and abandoning is that the more complicated they were, the harder they were to explain, the less likely they were to be successful. The best ones were like easy to explain, right? Hey, you need a FAFSA for high school, right? Hey, you know, you have too many trainers doing the same things, you know, in your big global corporation, right? You need to train your distributed workforce how to sell complicated products. Um, you know, once you got into like more than two sentences, you, you, you were probably off the rails a little bit. Um, so for mastery, you know, I think the big idea is, you know, students should progress based on mastery rather than seat time. That's it. You know, and again, we did not invent that. You know, um, Sal Khan has been talking about this for years. Other folks in the sector have been talking about the importance of progressing based on mastery. But if you take that basic concept and start to push on it, well, what happens if you actually do that, right? Well, now you're in a space where schools necessarily have to be more personalized, right? They have to be more learner-centered because we're not all doing the same things at the same time. It starts to make you think a lot about how you grade, like actual grading. And I think it's important to differentiate between grading and assessment. Um, I think there's ways of assessing kids holistically and authentically that don't look like traditional grading. And I think we really want to elevate those. But I think if you take traditional grading and say, hey, what is the purpose of traditional grading? You realize, well, if we're going to allow kids to progress when they actually master something, then it doesn't really matter if they got a 70 on that first week of school or 80 the next week. If anything, what matters is do they get to that high level of proficiency right and it naturally becomes go, yeah. formative yeah yeah so so if you then do that and i say okay well now we're in a model where we're going to set the bar very high but we're also going to give kids time space and supports to hit, hit that bar now you're talking about a movement that's inherently more equitable we think and a lot of the schools that we serve we think that as well um, and we also think that you're going to start to think about, well, what are these skills then? If we're going to set, if we're going to set high, clear, objective standards and hold kids accountable to those and give them time and space to achieve mastery, it forces the question of what is mastery. And so now you find yourself in a space where grading is not a black box um, subject to the whims of an individual educator, but um, the standards need to be really clear. The competencies need to be explicitly and, and clearly written with observable behaviors like Bloom's taxonomy. And so now you found yourself in the space of competency-based education. So again, it's all based on that first principle, uh, progressing based on mastery, uh, not on seat time. But once you get there, suddenly you find yourself in a space where schools just look fundamentally different. They're learner-centered. Your assessment models are different. You're looking at competencies. You're almost certainly now, if you're doing this, you're thinking about, well, if we're going to open up the model of competencies and what kids learn, let's focus on what should they learn? Let's ask those questions and we'll do the backwards design process, right? We'll do that portrait of a graduate. And shockingly enough, they don't necessarily look like classic academic subjects alone, right? We're not abandoning 
reading, writing, arithmetic, history. Content is important, right? I think if you look at the data around teaching kids to read, they need to have subject matter understanding in order to process and decode at you know, even very young ages. And I think certainly like having kind of a, you know, well, we could talk about what content you know, stays in and doesn't, but I think that, I think there's a lot more discretion we have as educators um, than traditional models kind of lead us to believe, where it's this race against the clock to cram in as much of the required content as possible. Um, and so um, when you take all these things to their conclusion, then you basically are questioning the concept of the credit hour. You're questioning the concept of grading based on points and GPA uh, and grading on a curve. And you're also creating space to assess kids on things that, you know, weren't necessarily traditionally looked at in school, like, you know, collaboration and teamwork skills and leadership and the so-called four C's and all these other things. And so that brings us to the transcript, right? Those three things I just ticked off, the credit hour, GPA, and classic academic subjects, they are the cornerstones of traditional high school transcripts. They're the building blocks of it. You literally can't generate a classic high school transcript without all three of those. And we're basically talking about a model where none of those three are suddenly there or kind of prioritized anymore. And that's that's creates issues because now take a step back. We're talking about a, schools that are trying to change their models. Um, but the most, for many of our schools and many of our communities, one of their most important metrics of success is whether their kids progress to college and also, to be frank, where they progress to college. Um, and if you are an advocate for school change and transformation and giving kids access to these better models, I can tell you just as a parent and as someone who lives in a community that is very college focused, the quickest way to you know, spike that effort, you know, to, to bring it to a grinding halt is to have it be associated with the message that, oh, this is going to cost your kids college. Like your kids are going to, your kids go to a school that looks non-standard, right? Let's be technical. Your kids go to a weird looking school, right? And they have a weird looking academic record. So... Parents are conservative. Parents are, and I don't mean conservative politically, I mean conservative and protective of their kids' well-being. So they push back. They say, oh, that doesn't look like something I'm familiar with. That looks strange or foreign or new, and I don't, I worry about it. And you can see um, all kinds of examples where the move towards competency-based or standards-based initiatives failed because of parent pushback, right? Because parents started looking at these numbers coming back on their students' progress reports and not understanding what they meant. So bringing this all full circle, um, we believed that for the movement to be successful, you needed a different kind of academic record that was designed from the ground up to meet the needs of these schools. And that is the mastery transcript. That's what we've tried to build. And I, I, I emphasize that we build it with our schools, um, MTC, a lot of people think the most important word is the T, the transcript, but it's not. It's the C. It's the consortium. It's the schools working together. And the schools come in from a, a lot of different angles and perspectives on this. Um, um, all of them, I think, are kind of would position themselves either where they are today or where they aspire to be under a broader umbrella of competency-based education and learner-centered um, kind of uh, 
education. Um, but they have different sort of drivers and, and, and motives. So it's a big tent. It's a happier tent because it's a big tent. Um, but they're all basically kind of trying to solve for this problem of how can we move away from credit hours and grades and still give our kids an academic record that will help them go wherever they want to go next. Awesome. I know you said the C is the most important letter, but <laughs> let's quickly talk about the T. Yeah, for sure. Uh, can you tell us about the product? What is the product from the perspective of perhaps we can go in the order of students? How is yeah. this interacting with their college dreams? Um, teachers and then universities, people actually get it and have to understand it. One of the things I, so one of the things that is interesting is we started very much through a K-12, obviously through a K-12 lens and building this product to meet the needs of learners and educators in high schools. And then by doing that, we found ourselves in a space where what we've built is actually relevant in a couple of different areas. And so the, the simplest way using kind of the, the terms of the sector to describe what we've built is that we've built a digital competency-based transcript um, that doesn't use grades and credit hours, but it simply includes little binary micro badges, evidence of mastery for particular competencies, and also associates them with artifacts, evidence of student learning. And I'll talk more about that. It's really important. You, whenever we talk about the two, you have to talk about the two together. It's the competencies and the evidence um, as, a, as kind of a pair or a unit. Um, so from a, a learner's perspective, what's different about the mastery transcript is that first of all, they have autonomy over it. They are authors of their transcript. And you know, again, I'll date myself back in the Stone Age when I graduated high school. Uh, late in my junior year, I was presented with this kind of dot matrix printout and I was told it was my transcript and I'd never seen it before. And I was like, oh, look at this. You know, I have grades and all these, I mean, I, knew, I was obviously getting report cards. I knew I had grades, but I'd never seen it all kind of distilled. Um, and that's how most of us kind of experience it. It's a summative thing. It gets cranked out of a piece of software. It's not something we can really consult. Our schools are learner center. Our schools assume that students should have agencies. They should be involved in making decisions about what they're learning, how they learn it, where they're going next. Um, we think that should be true of the transcript as well. So our system is as much an advisory system as it is a transcripting system. You know, the vision is that you start your high school journey, maybe not in ninth grade. We've actually looked at some schools that are doing this in practice and they actually find that Kids kind of need some space to kind of get deprogrammed from traditional grading if they went to a traditional middle school. But at some point early in the high school journey, either late, you know, ninth grade or early 10th grade, they start thinking about sort of, hey, what are the different skills that the school expects me to um, master, to, to attain? Um, and we could call those foundational, foundational skills or diploma requirements. Uh, in the context of the transcript, we call them foundational credits, those little micro badges that I was talking about, like one competency, yes or no, um, we call those the foundational set. Uh, and then on top of those, assuming that some kids, given time and space and personalized and, and progressing when they're ready, will go ahead, um, school, the schools that we think are really adopting this model give kids a lot of choice and autonomy at where they go next. And so kids will develop and start to attain advanced skills and proficiencies. Um, and more importantly, they'll start to attain them in different directions and different kind of areas of focus. So drawing from personal experience, um, my oldest, um, who's now uh, studying mechanical engineering in college, you know, 
he's always been obsessed with robots and drones and computers, right? That's a cliche, but as an elementary schooler, he was doing Lego constantly. But like, he's a tinkerer. Like, that's what he wants to do. Um, and so we were very lucky that his school gave him real time and space to do that. And if he, if his school were using Mastery Transcript, they don't. <laughs> but if they had been, um, he would. You would see his advanced credits would almost certainly have been distributed in those areas, areas of passion. I really have to emphasize that it's really about what the kids want to do and where they choose to go deeply. We're not assuming that kids sort of have these innate multiple intelligences where some kids learn, you know, effectively hands-on and some kids only learn by listening. Like, I think that's been pretty thoroughly debunked in the literature. I'm talking about areas of passion, right? Uh, that where kids given a choice, you want peanut butter or chocolate, you know, they choose one or the other. That's a bad example. Peanut butter and chocolate go well together. But, um, uh, but basically those advanced credits where I'm going with this, Given the kids' choice over where they go, what they study, um, there's two moves that are that are important there. The first is that that process of saying, "Hey, I am learning something. I'm working on a project, right?" I may not even know sort of what skills I'm developing, but I know what I'm trying to do with the project. I'm working with some adult in my school on the project. I'm getting feedback. And then I reach a point where, you know, my teacher, my advisor, and I think we're done, right? Now the decision is where do I go next? What have I learned? How am I reflecting on it? Maybe talking about it with other people, sharing what I've learned. Though that process of make a decision about what to learn, produce something, produce an artifact, right? Curate it. You say, hey, you know, this is something that I'm really proud of. I'm going to keep. I'm going to put in my mastery transcript. Uh, reflecting on it. Those are like essential steps for building metacognitive skills, like metacognition. Um, so again, it's as much about the process of building or curating the transcript as it is about the report itself. But fortunately enough, when you do get to the end of that journey and you've done that loop, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of times, you also now have this report that's incredibly rich and you have a profile that we hope and have seen is almost certainly going to be a jagged profile, right? So in traditional schooling tends to homogenize top performers, right? I, I live in a great suburb of Boston. Our schools here are world class. But I know if I go down the street and look at the kids who are in the quote unquote top 10 to 20% of their graduates, their transcripts look identical. They're all taking the same AP classes. They all have 4.0 or close to it. Um, and so again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, those kids being rational creatures and knowing that they need to differentiate in the competitive arms race that is college. Um, what are they going to do? Well, they're going to take more AP classes. Don't take five, take 10 or 12, right? Don't just sort of take a couple extracurriculars, right? Um, do dozens. Um, don't just volunteer in a nonprofit, start an NGO, right? So the kids like, you know, start to build up this sense of volume, right? And, and unfortunately, the evidence is that they kind of lose the thread along the way about learning and sort of what they actually care about, intellectual curiosity, all that stuff. Who's got time for curiosity, right? I've got, I've got to collect as many brass rings as possible before the clock runs out. So um, the contrast is, we think, in a school that is more learner-centered, more humane, um, and also more effective about building actual cognitive skills for learning, and I'll talk about that in a minute, um, the kids don't look homogenous, right? They're given space to do different things. And so that sense of a jagged profile of, I've gone one direction, you've gone another, and we're both better for it, um, is a core principle, both of the transcript and the school. So, so, the learner sense, so the learner experience is very much one of autonomy and making choices. That said, it's a school record, right? So 
So educators are in the loop. One of the things I, I always emphasize is that the mastery transcript is not a portfolio. And I say that because portfolio has come to mean a particular term of art in our space, right? Completely student curated um, and greatest hits album and kind of a blob, right? Undifferentiated. It's like, here's my, here's my stuff. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't build a good version of that, right? I think um, the team at MIT admissions invites budding engineers to submit maker portfolios, right? And I'm sure the ones that get kind of good results are pretty well structured and they're pretty well described right but but that is by definition an edge case um, and you know they have the faculty involved in reviewing those and so when we think about questions of scale how to create uh, models that allow all kids to have you know these kinds of reports and use them in all kinds of settings we have to look at ones that are you know easier to process on the reader side so um, so the educators are in the loop um, no kids don't award themselves kind of mastery of competencies. Let's talk about the school design implications to run something like this, because from yeah, a let's... student perspective, it's it's wonderful. You know, cumulative, low stakes, competency based. It's all the buzzwords that people in the industry are fond of and that we at Sora are very fond of. But what we understand at Sora, having run a future focused school like this, is you have to rethink most aspects of schooling curriculum becomes in, in good ways <laughs> like integrated curriculum becomes extremely relevant scoping meaning scoping by you know real world problem not not subject you know th these sort of incredible things it allows us to do is, is amazing but you're you can't really just slap that into a public school and say go they will they'll flounder so how have you noticed schools have to reform themselves just to be able to interface with a transcript like this well i i guess i would gently push back on making it a differentiation between independent schools and public schools right i think if you look at the work of say the aurora institute which i i would basically say is the leading sort of kind of i wouldn't call it a governing body but like sort of like policy and kind of thinking tank and kind of thought leaders for the space for competency-based education. They've got this map of the 50 states. And when I started this work four years ago, you know, some of the states were color-coded as doing things in competency-based. But if you look at it today, the whole map is lit up like a Christmas tree. Every state is doing something. Some of the states, um, you know, and, and it's interesting because a lot of the things you might think you could use to predict whether a state is innovative in terms of rethinking education, whether it's its political slants or its economics, is like none of them actually hold, right? Um, and so there, um, Utah is a state that has built an entire statewide portrait of a graduate and is really has an entire kind of like initiative around personalized competency-based learning for all high schools in the state. Um, South Carolina is a state that has thought pretty deeply about how to create kind of the workforce of tomorrow because they're really invested in trying to build and attract kind of high technology manufacturing entities like Boeing and BMW to be there. And so um, at the policy level, they're thinking about it. Washington State, I could keep going on all different states that are doing interesting work. So, but I do agree completely with your uh, with the premise of your question, which is, um, you know, you are talking about necessarily large scale transformation of how we deliver schooling, right? What school looks like. Um, and so I think if you were, I, one of the things that I, I cringe at sometimes, like I think if you were, if you're trying to like do the worst job of describing in the project of FTC, it's like, oh, those guys are getting rid of grades. 
right? Because that implies like, oh, if you get right. regrades, like there are good things happen. It's like that's not how that works. <laughs> you have to you have to that's rebuild not high yeah. schools <laughs> so that you can get to a point where you don't need grades anymore. And that's not semantics. That that's a very different kind of process model and and work. Um, you know, we, you know, our term of art for it is called the journey to mastery, right? And so we have, it's a pretty classic kind of maturity model. Like you can see these in, in business and in different sectors, right? Where you basically, hey, you start at stage one and if you do the work right, you get to stage five and stage five is better than stage one. Um, you know, but those models uh, exist in other places as well. And I think that's one of the reasons why at the risk of sounding like a broken record, um, we're glad it's not just us, right? There are, you know, tons of folks doing really thoughtful work helping schools transform right so i think about organizations like knowledge works or the great schools partnership or nglc or um you know patel for kids and i can keep going on but like there's a bunch of organizations that are doing deep like ground level boots on the ground school transformation um and i think they're very good at that i think what we are trying to bring to the discussion um, is again a point of view around the transcript itself. Like we built something. Like we're not a think tank. You know, we don't do white papers and policy and advocacy. Those things are really important. But like we wanted to get a tool into the hands of people, knowing that it would on day one solve some problems, and then it would also sort of surface other questions because that's how product development works, right? You learn things. So one of the things that like I'm really sensitive to, and I mean this in not emotionally, but like in, in the market way, is the fact that you can have the perfect mastery transcript system. I'm not saying we have that yet. I'm we're still working towards it. And it still wouldn't scale unless you create a bunch of complementary technologies that are upstream, right? Um, there are entrepreneurs right now, I hope, who are working on creating a really, really good learner-centered, competency-based LMS, systems to manage project and problem-based learning. Because I will tell you, legacy systems don't do that stuff well. Um, and it's not that due to lack of trying, it's that their architecture is just all wrong. Um, you know, and uh, we go off on like, what that means and why, but like, just if we just for now stipulate that as a premise, schools are going to need different tools. At SOAR, we've had to build an entirely new LMS just for ourselves because doing this level, doing this cumulative low stakes competency base plus tracking content like we wanted to, we came to the quick realization after auditing hundreds of tools. There's literally none that exist. So we've been spending a lot of our time and resources into creating the the LMS and the, and the systems that we think our students, families, and faculty deserve. And I think, you know, and it's to your credit that you did that. And I, from the outside looking in, I would guess that um, thinking about the world of your school, not as a collection of courses, but as a universe of competencies was probably one of the big technical issues. And I would imagine too that like- Exactly, yep. Even the primitives, the data models of other LMSs are just incompatible. There's no way to massage it to make it work. So you can bolt on like, oh, we, we added rubrics, right? Into our, it, that's, I mean, that, that's nice. That's good. Rubrics are better than other models, but like that's that's not gonna kind of fundamentally change the, the the, the way the data is being managed or what the user interfaces are like, the user experience. So yeah, it's good to you guys credit that you did that. So Mike, we've been talking about how this product works, how schools need to reform themselves to be uh, compatible, but let's go back in the conversation where you spoke about this 
it is still weird, right? It is still different. So these these sensitive parents who are scared of, of bucking the norm because it may hurt their kids' chances at college. Have you seen that be the case? And now you have, what, four years or at least a year. I'm not sure where you are on the journey of, of data. So does it work? <laughs> yeah, so, so it, for the four years, you can break it into kind of two phases. Phase one, years one and two was all based on design, right? We were just, we were talking to people, talking to schools, talking to universities, making paper prototypes, no actual transcripts, just sort of kind of like ideating, designing, and friend raising. Um, years three and four, the past two years, we actually have had schools using the mastery transcript. And we did a kind of an interesting thing. We, we The number one question we get is, oh, this is great. Can I use this plus my traditional transcript? Can I use this as a supplement for competencies? And we made a choice not to do that. And um, and it's a little counterintuitive because as I think I've touched on before, you know, I, I come from a for-profit background, um, you know, and it's unusual for me to be in a position to say, oh no, we can't do that because everybody would want it. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but that's true. Like everybody would want the mastery transcript as a supplement, but we didn't, we wanted you know, we're a nonprofit. We're trying to drive change in the sector. And so the schools that use the transcript had to use it as a full replacement for an academic transcript, right? So no supports, um, you know, kind of like they were going to do it all in. But the upshot of doing that is that now two years in, we've got over 170 colleges and universities accepted kids using the mastery transcript. Uh, and more recently, because of COVID, they actually accepted kids without standardized test scores either. Um, right. So um, the first we kind of forced get take grades out of the equation and the second sort of the universe and the pandemic kind of forced. Um, but I think the results are really encouraging. Now, what we have is this amazing set of cases, right? The kids are doing great. We're kind of making some steps towards how can we work with them to longitudinally track their results? Because that's the big question, right? You know, um, where's the data? Universities appropriately have used the data they have, GPAs and test scores for decades. And, you know, they've got institutional research teams and they can show you all these analyses about how kids on certain, you know, kind of quadrants of this matrix have better kind of or worse first year GPAs, four year or six year graduation rates, et cetera. You know, and we're building something new, right? So I, I don't have a data set from decades that I can show them. I know that building that with our schools, with the consortium over time, and with the help of some other players in the space is an essential sort of to-do for the sector. Um, we need data to backstop sort of these hypotheses that we're, that we're kind of launching. But I will say that the, um, the qualitative feedback from the people who read folders in schools has been really good. Um, I, I think we, we did a uh, kind of a, we call them a talk back, but they're basically webinars that are completely self-facilitated by the presenters, like there's no MTC person on the stage. And we did one with a bunch of um, uh, admissions officers from a cross-section of universities, like Michigan, uh, Georgetown, I think Vermont. And I, the, the feedback I love the most was from um, a, a young guy who was reading folders at the University of Michigan who just said, yeah, it was no big deal. That's fine. Like we, we look at we look at kind of weird stuff all the you know transcripts all the time. It's fine. That's it. I, I'll take it. Like uh, just being able to go to families and say, look, your child can have access to a four-year high school experience that, by any objective measure or qualitative or affective measure, is like a better kind of high school, and we'll get the same results on the outbound side. 
whether it's college or two-year college or technical or workforce, you know, whatever they want to do next, you know, saying no worse than is a win for us. Uh, and then there are folks too who also kind of got it on the metacognitive side, right? I think one of the things that is interesting about this is that um, kids who go to mastery transcript schools, and I'm giving schools the credit, it's not the transcript, it's the schooling, um, are incredibly strong candidates because if you talk to them, and again, we've got sort of these panels where the kids are talking about their own experiences, they're like preternaturally articulate and composed about talking about their learning, right? Because that's, that, that's a skill. What did you learn? What are you doing next? What are the implications of it? How do you intend to transfer it to something, either something you're gonna learn next or something you're gonna do? Um, those are the moves, those are the power moves of kind of like metacognition and adult lifelong learning. And the kids are building those skills now. And I think it's easy to talk about that in a jargony way, but when you see it and you hear these kids, whoa, that, you know, they come across as other things. And we're like, wow, these kids seem really mature, composed, articulate, thoughtful. Um, kind of self-directed. Um, those are all things that, like you know, they they are kind of blinking positive lights. They're signal in a lot of noise in in the admissions process or the hiring process. Um, the kids they, they make good candidates because you know they've if you free me the technical term they've got their act together right. So um, so I think um, so the, the the early returns there are good. Now the challenge we have and it's really important to talk about the challenges because you know we're not naive. We still have to create models that will allow this to scale. So, you know, right now, the, the single, you know, I, I think maybe like the University of Washington probably got like five or six of our transcripts last year. And that was like the biggest number for any one school. Um, what, what's it going to look like when Washington gets 500 or 1,000 or 2,000? And, you know, from there, it's kind of start thinking about first principles, right? Well, what are the, some of the first principles of scaling? Well, you start to kind of see like, oh, well, it's great that the current model and competency-based school transformation starts with creating local portraits of a graduate, right? Where every school, every community works in these backwards design processes to identify the skills that they care about most. But we don't think that having 500 schools with 500 discrete competency models is going to be the way this scales. At the same time, that is where the sector is, right? So, um, so what we have to do in partnership with other organizations and with policymakers and, and leaders at the state level is find the places where um, you know the term of art um, that comes from Tom Vanderark, who's on our board um, from Getting Smart. Um, he talks to us a lot about quality networks about finding these groups of schools. Some are formally structured, some are self-aggregating, right? Whether it's the schools in the Big Picture Learning Network or the XQ schools or some of the kind of higher profile learner-centered charter schools, um, state movements, you know, the work is being done. But at some point, we are going to have to find ways of not standardizing the competencies. I, I think the sector has kind of a, an appropriate level of immune response to things that feel like top-down standardization, right? The common core reaction. Nobody wants that. So I think, it, but there's ways that the competencies are going to have to harmonize. Um, I also think too that I do think technology will provide some solutions here. I'm not like a tech utopian where like everything's going to be self-driving and fix itself. You just have to have enough processing power. But I do think that there are aspects to this problem space of you have a lot of plain language descriptors of essential skills and behaviors. 
um, in the K-12 area, and at some point you need a way of kind of making them all match. Um, I do think that that is a problem that is actually pretty well suited to certain kinds of emerging computing technology. So I do feel pretty good about our ability to solve that over, over the coming years with the right partners and, and stakeholders. Um, so yeah, that's the, the higher end side. Early returns are great. But scale is the biggest issue over time, and we're working on it. You know, and I think we've got the right people to to work on it with. Related to that, let's talk about reform more broadly. So you are uniquely qualified to speak on this issue, given that you've been working for four plus years on trying to convince people to radically rethink how school is done. So four years of reflection. Uh, are you more or less hopeful than? when you were naive and kicked this thing off that reform is possible? Uh, way more, way more. And, and it's, I am optimistic to a fault, right? I think that's the one thing that I, I've learned. Like you don't become a serial entrepreneur unless you have kind of a, a kind of the emotional kind of uh, composition of a weeble wobble, right? Where you're not going to pop that <laughs> yeah. up again. And so, I love that. Um, I think the, why do I say that? The last two years, objectively, for the country, for educators, for learners, have been horrible, right? The pandemic has just been excruciating for schools and schooling and students and learners, right? And this year, sadly, anecdotally, like I haven't talked to a single school leader who thinks this year was better than last year. If anything, it's been harder, right? Because the expectations, well, we're all going back and everything's going to be normal. And then, but you know, the, the virus gets a vote and uh, it's not normal. So um, why do I frame it that way? As bad as all of that has been, uh, it has been an incredible forcing function or catalyst for people taking a really hard look at how schools work and where schools do not work effectively, right? Um, regular people reading regular newspapers now are talking about getting rid of seat time. Um, you talk about entire states rethinking sort of kinds of letter grading. Um, the standardized testing movement has, you know, been dealt with, I don't want to say death blow, but if I am leading an organization that makes standardized tests, I am really deeply concerned about sort of the long-term viability of my product. Um, so you have a lot of things that were that kind of four years ago seemed sort of fixed or sacrosanct. Well, you're never going to get rid of that. And now suddenly a lot of people are like, why do we do that? Like, we need to get rid of that. Yeah. So yeah, that, <laughs> that doesn't if, make any sense. If you're a change agent, if you're trying to be a change agent and you work with schools that are trying to change, that is a, that is a cause for hope. People, a lot of the things that kind of people just sort of assumed as premises are now up for grabs. Uh, and I think that's really encouraging for any of us that are, are doing the work. You mentioned you mentioned standardized tests. So standardized tests, as we know, and I think most people are, are aware of this, but 40, what is it, 50, whatever, years ago, this was, this was the progressive move, trying to create more equity in education, create an uh, even playing field for kids from lower income backgrounds to compete with these kids going to, you know, these fancy boarding schools. So in a world without standardized tests, and trust me, I think they're deeply flawed, right? <laughs> but I think we still have to address the equity piece. And I'm personally concerned because what happens when we move into a more portfolio or mastery or whatever we want to call it, um, admissions process, but lower income schools don't reform themselves to provide these sort of this time and space and resources for, um, for kids to compete. So uh, who's going to have the best portfolio? Who's going to have the best projects? Rich kids or kids who go to reform schools, which generally is 
going to be higher income areas, at least how I see it playing out. So how do you think this equity piece is going to be accounted for in the future? Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, I, I think back to high school physics class, right, where you, you know, kind of would start a lot of discussions like assume a frictionless plane. <laughs> That's a really big assumption, right? Yeah. So, sure, assume a standardized test that doesn't skew inordinately to household income. I think a lot of people would be in favor of that kind of standardized test. I think that would be legitimately a tool for equity. But those are not the tests, at least, that we have so far today. Um, but you know, if you give me your zip code, I can predict your median SAT scores because of the household income and property taxes where you live. Um, and I think that, to me, is sort of why the folks, the regents and the UC system and others are saying, hey, if we're going to walk the walk on equity and having really kind of representative models for kids who have access to these flagship state schools that are funded with state dollars, we need different models. And I'm not smart enough to, to know what the solutions are for them. Um, but I, I appreciate that they're tackling the questions. What I would say is um, standards are equitable, um, standards that are explicit and inspectable and clear that are not sort of black box based on individual judgment and discretion and, you know, kind of institutional or personal biases. Those, I think, are sort of the path forward. And I think the competency-based movement, you know, again, we did not create this in MTC. We are riding a wave of other schools rethinking this. It is at core an equity movement. Um, it is designed to say, hey, all kids are capable of learning given the right supports and structures. The equity is about giving the kids what they need um, to be successful. And um, and yes, it is not, no one is um, putting, you know, no one is suggesting that the underlying school transformations are easy or that they are revenue neutral or like, uh, uh, and I'm really, I personally am very glad that we picked a very narrow piece of the puzzle. And as a result, we get to talk to other schools and other school leaders that are working this model really deeply. Because I know like if I were charged with doing it single-handedly, it would not happen. Uh, it's, it's a collective movement. Awesome. Well, we'll leave it there, Mike. We ran out of time, but thank you so much for being on the show today. This was a wonderful conversation and I hope your, your, some of your optimism can spread to the rest of the listeners as well. <laughs> Yeah, I appreciate the time, and uh, you know, uh, I appreciate your your uh, as our schools are creating time and space uh, for us to kind of wander a little bit. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Soar's Learning Labs. Check out our other episodes for more thoughtful conversations with experts on learning, pedagogy, and more.